Today's episode is brought to you by the Twilio Signal Conference, October 17th and the 18th in San Francisco. The mission is going to be there on location. You can use our code MISSION20 to get a discount on your tickets, and we will see you there. And now, let's jump into today's episode. I am thrilled to bring you today's episode 100 of the Mission Daily. So why am I so excited? Because we have a special guest today. That's my good friend, Riva Melissa Tez. Riva's many things. Among them, she's the co-founder and managing partner of Permutation Ventures. Permutation Ventures is an early-stage AI-focused investment fund that's based in San Francisco. She's also co-directing research with a Stanford professor on the formation of political views in Silicon Valley. And on top of that, she's a writer, philosopher, and occasional angel investor. But best of all, she's one of the kindest people I know. Please welcome Riva. She's at Riva Tez on Twitter. And now, let's jump into today's episode. Riva, what's up? Thanks for joining us today. I know. It's, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we were just talking. It's the 100th episode. This is our uh, episode spectacular. We're going to go to the phones in a little bit, hopefully raise a little bit of money, do, do the telethon action. No, I'm just kidding. So I already read your bio. It's amazing. Super excited to have you here. And I was hoping that we could go through your story, some of the things you've been up to recently, and then jump into your ideas, which are super interesting. When people ask what you do, what do you tell them? I've had the problem of trying to answer that all my life because I try and do many different things. But I think at the heart of everything, I'm interested in philosophy first. And everything else is, is sort of an extension of that. So in one hat, I am a venture capitalist. I'm investing in AI startups. In another hat, I am researching economic policy. I'm also writing articles and attempting to write a draft for a book that has been happening for a very, very long time. And also trying to work out how to influence and push the needle in terms of different cultural things. And they all come together in a nice way, but I don't feel that I have one title that could pinpoint exactly what it is. That's a great problem now. Weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> all the best people are. So on your Twitter bio, you have a pinned tweet that I love. And the quote is, we never had to take any of it seriously, did we? She whispered. No, we never had to. So I knew who said that, but who said that? Why do you love it so much? And what does it mean to you? I read Atlas Shrugged at 18 and I thought I understood it. But rereading it last year, I realized with the life lessons I've had in the last 10 years that I could only possibly even begin to understand it now. And I resented myself for not understanding it at 18 and saving so much time. But rereading it last year, I had this amazing moment where in the book, there's a scene where John Gall and Dagny Tagger are looking out and they're looking out over the world as they know it. And she says to him, we never had to take any of it seriously, did we? And he said, you know, no. And to me, that was the premise of the entire book. That was the book was about, which is reality isn't, is playable. Like it's not something that is completely defined. And I kept that, that I took a photo of that quote and I Googled it afterwards. And I found out reading some of Ayn Rand's letters that she'd written in a personal letter that that line was the most important line to her when she wrote the book. And I felt very connected to her when I, I spotted that. And I asked a lot of people if they'd noticed that line too. And some of them had and some of them hadn't. But it was very poignant to me that this idea of reality that went, goes through Atlas Shrugged was highlighted in that exact dialogue. I think that if you live long enough, 
you tend to encounter many situations where what you've held in your mind happens and you stop becoming surprised and start realizing just how malleable reality is or you get so creeped out and, and terrified that you have to take a break for a while and then come back into it. But um, that's really exciting. And that's a cool takeaway from Ayn Rand. Not many people take those yeah. sentiments away from her. And I think that's a shame because we're talking about someone who barely escaped the USSR with her life. She was starving. She was watching her family starve, probably had PTSD her whole life. And yet she managed to get through it. And she never had a positive book review in her in her life. She never saw it. And there still haven't been many positive reviews of her work, even though it's been picked up by so many people. So the people, people love the book, but critics don't love the book. And I feel sad that she maybe didn't experience just how long her impact would have. But I actually, my takeaways from Ayn Rand, even less about objectivism and I loved her views on relationships. And she has an amazing quote, which is, you can't say I love you until you work out what the I is. And I remember reading that as a teenager and thinking that most people don't do that in relationships. And people think that she's just this like horrible person and selfishness is a bad thing. And I thought that description about love and understanding who you are was very wise. So some of the things she said have just totally shaped me as a person. And it's not the most obvious things at all. <laughs> For anybody that's listening out there that might be on the fence or thinking they know about Ayn Rand from other people's interpretations or criticisms, I would just like to just do a quick uh, segue here. You're one of the most kind and caring people I know in terms of a lot of the your pursuits and things that you do on the on the side. When you came to San Francisco for the first time, because you moved here from Germany or the yeah, UK? Berlin. Berlin. So when you came here for the first time, how did you react to the situation and the people? What was that like for you? Well, the reason I moved here is that I was running a startup in Berlin and I came to San Francisco because we had an investor that was based here. And I went to a tech event and I went to lots of tech events in Germany, but I went to a tech event here and I just felt easily the dumbest person in the room. And I thought that was fantastic because <laughs> <laughs> in Berlin, I was you know 22 and speaking on panels and somehow being given this expert status. And I felt I had horrible imposter syndrome. And my experience of coming to San Francisco was, oh, none of these people will ever take me seriously. And I thought, what a challenge. And I want to be always in the place where I'm the dumbest person in the room. And that's what brought me. And I remember coming here and I was listening to Led Zeppelin going to California on my iPhone. And I didn't know what to expect. And I was just, I wrote myself a note, which was, you have to move here. And actually, it was funny because yesterday- I love writing myself notes. I write myself- the best way to convey messages. Totally. I write myself letters to open in the future a yeah. lot of the time. But actually, yesterday was my five-year anniversary of being in San Francisco. And I, I thought back to that. I actually went and opened that diary about how I had to live there. And I, it was on the, I'd taken the cow train that day. And I was like, all these people are just doing such interesting things. And I mean, now I hate going on the cow train. So, you know, you, you see things through rose-tinted glasses. But, but yeah, I just felt so intimidated that that really brought me here. And just really quick, too, I want to bring up because I think I either heard you say this or I read in your writing about your first interactions or reactions to homeless people and people that were suffering. What? Yeah. How did you yeah, uh, react it was, to that? It's just it's a little weird, I suppose. I came to San Francisco and I was just watching people like passed out on the street. And the first time I ever saw someone passed out on the street, I was on the Mooney and I got off the Mooney to go check if the guy was OK. And everyone was really really taken aback by this and then I someone spoke to me afterwards and they just said you know this is you're new here like this is just kind of like part of the scenery 
And I thought, well, you don't know if that person is okay. I can't tell just going back if this person is dead or alive or sleeping or drunk or on drugs. I can't just presume that this person is drunk or something and I should just go by. And I never wanted to lose that thing of checking if people were okay. And it's been a hard battle because you have an integrity kind of moral compass. And it's challenged a lot in San Francisco because it almost happens to become part of the scenery because you see it so much. And that's been very, very hard for me to adjust to even watching other people ignore it. Do you feel like a lot of people do calculus in their heads where they think, okay, what I'm working on is impacting or helping a thousand people that I don't know. So I don't have to help the person that I come across on the street. Do you think that they're doing that calculus, a lot of founders and VCs, or do you think that they are not? I think that's a very optimistic view. <laughs> that is for sure how I like calculate things in my head. Sometimes I take a, I'm quite anti-utilitarian for the most of the part, but sometimes I make these utility calculations. And I think that when I talk to people, it's more that, you know, they're saying, oh, well, they're drunk or they're on drugs. And I think coming from a family that has many different health issues and my mum and dad could both be any of those people on the street. I think I feel more personally indebted to like check. But some people definitely are running that utility function. But that's a very optimistic view, I still think. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're probably right. (laughs) So you just mentioned your parents. What was it like growing up in your household? You had one sister or any other siblings? I have a half, I now have a half brother and a half sister, but I grew up, my sister was a lot older. So she'd left home by by the time I was very young. And my mum is schizophrenic and my dad was an electrical engineer, but they got divorced when I was young. And my mum doesn't understand how the world works. Oh, well, she she has just a different version of reality is, well, I suppose we all do, but she has a very weird sure. version of reality. We ended up in a homeless shelter when I was, you know, still in primary school. And so I had an unusual upbringing because my mum doesn't believe that the world is real. And it was the best life lesson I could ever have because she's right. Some of the smartest people in the world don't. Yeah, exactly. She's right. She just has an alternative model that's a little bit iffy. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't have a stable home. And definitely, I mean, I believe my mum's world vision because you're on your kid, you just believe what your parents said. So when I was 13 was the first time I realized that my mum was sick. And before that, I thought everything she said was true. So I had a huge reality shock when someone said, hey, your mum is mentally ill. And I was like, she told me you would say that. (laughs) Um, But uh, it definitely took some deprogramming. But the thing that I came away with was not that my mum was sick. It was just that that everybody was sick. Yeah. So that's an amazing lesson that she taught me. Everybody's sick in their own ways. Kind of like many people are proactively trying to heal themselves or else they're not or else they're unaware. Or how, How do you view that? Yeah, I think... My model for it is, is that everybody has a terrible and fallible world model, but some people's world models are believed in by a lot of people. Sure. So it's not really that there's like a truth justification to people's world models. It's just that if a lot of people believe in one way, then you're not mentally ill. My mum thinks that certain people are controlling the world and not a lot of people agree with her on that. But, you know, there's some people who believe that all sorts of conspiracy theories and hers are just very weird. So it tends to be that belief is justified by how many people believe it. And there's no way of guaranteeing which one is right or which one's wrong. It's just that my mum's is very obtuse. Do you feel like getting buy-in on larger and larger and groups groups of people who believe a certain thing requires you to sell a portion of your soul or more and more of your soul to get more and more belief? Or do you think that there are a lot of objective narratives and stories that large groups of people believe in that are actually true or useful? Oh, I definitely think there are lots of things that are very, very useful. And 
there's sort of truth validity in many different things. I think almost that people have to go with the ones that serve them and their purpose a little. But the thing that scares me more is just believing in something because a lot of people believe in it. Sure. And people don't revise why they believe a certain thing. So they don't stop to think, why do I think this thing? I have a handbag that says, don't believe everything you think. So that reminds me to not take things too seriously. But yeah, people don't stop and think about what their world model is or how they've got there. Your sister, your family, would you describe yourselves as close growing up? Or have you tried to bring everyone together? Is your family already close somewhat? Or how, how would you describe that? Uh, definitely not cl- When everyone's a bit insane, we're not all close. But my mother and my father now, ironically, after 22 years of not seeing each other, I rented them both houses opposite each other. So it's a bit like a (laughs) Lindsay Lohan parent trap movie because they both live in Istanbul now, which is where they're both from. And I rented them both houses and they live opposite each other. I'm sorry, I got to interrupt. Was that a good feeling, renting them houses close together? It was probably the best moment of my life. It was really great. That's really, really cool. I I always wanted it to be the case. I mean, my parents have no money. And I wanted it to be the case that if I ever made any money, the first thing I would do is go back and and sort them out. And now they live in near their family and they have houses by the sea and they can kind of like retire in the country where they're from. And it was an amazing experience because it was just like I handed them both keys. I was I was for once very proud of myself for a brief minute until my parents complained about all the furniture and all the things I picked. But, uh, <laughs> but I, hey, I get my, uh, my uh, um, divaness from my parents, so it's okay. That's really, yeah, that's really, really funny. So what was school like for you? I, just selfishly, I always ask this question because I had, I had a very adverse reaction <laughs> to uh, K through 12, and I, I want to hear what yours was like. So I went to the same school from 4 till 18, and it was a very kind of posh, school in England and people always find this weird in my life story because they say well you said you didn't come from money so how did you get to go to this great school and I was such a precocious child that I got a full scholarship into this school and everyone was very wealthy and you know the kind of they had ponies and stuff like that and I was just a total freak <laughs> I mean first of all I was like a fat tomboy and I would wear like uh, skateboarding clothes and chains around my legs and you know punk t-shirts were the chains connected to a wallet or what were you like it was just or... like a style thing I suppose gotcha. I've got some photos uh, you know, quite hilarious and I would just hang out with all the boys and go skateboarding and I was very naughty so I my got detention at the first time at five and this is pre-watching The Matrix, obviously, but I'd, <laughs> I'd convinced every kid on my school lunch table that what we were supposed to do in our first week of school was to bend all the spoons. <laughs> so every kid in my class bent the spoon and presented it to the teacher. And he was like, why is everyone bent the spoons? And they all pointed at me and I was just dying laughing. And That's I remember really that funny. was my, my first attention. And when I watched The Matrix, I was like, you see, this movie was about me. That was the first thing. But I just pranked my school the entire time. And I actually got expelled. The reason why I got thrown out in my, the last year, which actually was the best thing that happened to me because I got to take as many exams as I wanted. But I'd put the school up for sale. It was a 500-year-old school. And I put it up for sale in the local newspaper as a classified ad, as a development opportunity for a building. <laughs> and I Is didn't that think- how you presented it? Or like was, yeah. What, did you go like Shackleton? with the ad or did you go like were you like real estate agent with it real estate agent i put it in the i didn't think the newspaper would print it because it's so obvious the school would to me wouldn't be for sale but the ad ran and i was sitting in a latin class and the teacher came in i had met mistress and she grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and she put me in her room and she'd opened the newspaper and it was the first time i'd seen it so i 
burst out laughing and she knew it was me and she said i've had parents calling all day saying what's happening what am i going to do with you know ophelia and everyone else and that was my like last day at school and my mum framed that ad and put it in her living room so it's like luckily my parents just didn't care but, but she was yeah. proud of the right things it seemed like she thought it was hilarious yeah i like that how did you find philosophy or how did philosophy find you I think I was eight when I told my mum that I would be a philosopher when I was growing up and she thought I was strange. But I got really into reading Descartes when I was a kid. And from there, I kind of just explored. I went to like Nietzsche and Plato. And I thought, what can be more important than working out what good is? Because everyone else is telling me how their thing is good, but I don't even know what good is. And I just became obsessive. And I never was going to apply. Actually, I did. That's not true. The first thing I applied to do was theology and philosophy. And I wanted to look at both areas. And I ended up having to move to London and doing straight philosophy. But I always knew that I was going to go into that realm. It's like a vocation, I suppose. Sometimes you just know. Definitely. With growing up and everything like that in school, when you got expelled, did you go back or were you out on your own at that point? Well, they, the irony was is that they said to me, well, you're out now, so you have to pay to do your exams. And in England, you have A-levels and you're supposed to just do three. And I'd done like all the classics. I'd done Latin and ancient Greek and history. But I thought, well, if I can pay to do my exams, I might as well just take loads more. So I did six. And they kind of were like, oh, here's Reva just, you know, being Reva and she's going to do the exams. But I got six A's. And the the hypocrisy was then is that the teachers tried to call me in for prize giving because I'd got the best grades in the year. And they said, well, we're going to award you the Dean Prize. And I was like, you guys kicked me out of this school. You can't expect you to pay for my exams and bring me in. And, That's and, how alumni relations works. Once you start going well or taking off, like they come grab you. I know. They tried to ask, they asked me to speak <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a prize giving ceremony a few years ago. And I was like, you guys expelled me. I'm not going to come back and lay loyalty to the school. contact my speaker bureau if you're trying to get, get at me with that. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> Actually, I had my high school 10-year anniversary last year, and my one of my teachers came up to me, and she'd had a few drinks. It was actually my <laughs> math teacher. And she said there was a bet when I was in school that I was either going to end up in jail or really successful. And I said to her, don't worry, I've done both. So uh, <laughs> I somehow matched their, their estimates on things. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah, it's only one night in educators... a cell. It's only one night in a cell. It wasn't a big deal. Yeah. I love when educators reveal their true intentions for students. What's up with people wanting binary outcomes? Like, it doesn't have to be binary. You got investors doing that. Educators are doing that. Are they one and the same? Yeah. I just don't think people are very imaginative. I don't think so either. And to be fair, they were probably right because most of the... I shouldn't say this on the record, but, you know, everyone... The people, actually, I was too optimistic. I thought oh, everyone in my school would like take over the country and like be like world leaders. Like I was so optimistic for them. And the problem with self-efficacy and education is really bad. I was kind of proud that she said I was going to be successful and end up in jail because at least she thought I was going to hustle something. <laughs> yeah. And at least she thought that attention would still be on you. That's nice. And yeah. Yeah. I would say too that it's interesting. It's very frustrating seeing potential in others that they don't see in themselves, right? Totally. Is that something that you find yourself succumbing to a lot or? I mean... I looked up to most of the girls in my school and thought that they were going to run the world. I, I mean, I was smart. I was not the smartest. I was definitely one of the best. But there were some girls who just trumped me on everything. And uh, I really thought that they would be like the new generation of world leaders. And it's not a thing. Like maybe I sometimes think like maybe they didn't want to be. It's not like you can impose your ambition levels on other people. <laughs> but yeah, I have I have been perturbed, I guess, by the amb ambition levels of, of our generation. I imagined that everyone would be like an Elon Musk. And I had the imposter syndrome that I wasn't good enough. 
And I think luckily, like, sheer ambition and will to drive, like, pushed me up a bit. And I keep thinking, like, if they had their talents and they were even better than me, then, you know, maybe they would all be my bosses now. I don't think they would be. So you're a grandmaster of sales. And I don't use that term lightly. I use that term in the nerdiest sense possible. I think you're an expert at sales. And you have a really interesting story about how you started to practice it, that art. So when did that start? And it's a pretty funny story. So yeah, uh, I'd love to hear you tell it. I was 15 and my sister, who is 17 years older than me, she had got this position to sell garden sinks at a trade show. And she was she's an actress. So, you know, you do these kind of side hustle gigs. And on the first day of the job at this trade show, it was 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. She had to sell an outdoor sink. And she fell asleep on the job because my sister cannot pretend to do things she wants to do. So she, they said to her, listen, you can't work here. You have to find someone else to replace you. And she said, oh, what about my sister? And she lied and said I was over 16. She said, she'll, she'll do it. And they thought, well, we don't have anyone else who'll come tomorrow. So I truanted from school. I got on the train. I didn't even have a ticket. I had to like hide in the bathroom to get on a train to London. I was just, I had no idea. I'd never sold anything before. I didn't really, I'd never worked apart from as a waitress. And I basically had to sell garden sinks all day long, every day for three weeks. And what I did was I would sell the sinks. I would try and model for selling them because people, you're trying to capture people's attention as they're walking by. And it's a huge um, through fair, maybe like 12,000 people a day. I'd try different things. At the end of the day, I'd write about it in a little notebook. And then I would see what worked and what didn't. So I was doing like A-B testing for sales. And by the like third week, I was trumping every other person in the company that I was meant to be. They were selling more expensive items, but my commission rates were going through the roof. And what I'd learned to do was disarm the people and I'd bring them in with a joke. So people would walk by and it'd be mainly older couples. And I would always address the woman. I'd go, do you have a dirty husband? And they would laugh. That's, and yeah, and that's they'd laugh and I'd say, they're like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, and I'd, I'd go into the spiel about how I had the sink and it would mean not having to bring dirty items into the house. And I would just win them on humor, I suppose. I learned very fast the models of that. And I made more money at that time than I'd ever seen before in my life. So it was just sales by practice. No formal education. I just learned that you have to test models. Did you have chains coming out of your pockets at this point? Or were you still in the tomboy skater phase? No, no, I was, this is when I was kind of like 17. No, no, I wasn't 17. I was 15. Yeah, I was 15 because I wasn't 16. I was 15 and I was kind of a bit girlier, but a bit nerdier. But I was wearing a suit because I had imposter syndrome. So. Oh, damn. Yeah. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross style or just... I think I was borrowing my sister's clothes. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably too big. <laughs> Very cool. So, yeah, I love that story. I sold vacuum cleaners door to door for a while. And that was... There you go. We all end up best, in Silicon Valley, huh? <laughs> the best education ever. Because yeah. if you can sell somebody an $1,800 vacuum cleaner that oh, you just whoa. met, like cold introduction. Yeah. And the person that's like inking or like helping you close the deal is on drugs, like you're going to be able to sell anything. You're going to be able to sell more legitimate things in the future. So. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of people in Silicon Valley who've done kind of door-to-door sales or were forced into that kind of experience young right. at an age. I think Brian Johnson was, has a story about how he did like Credit door-to-door. Card transactions yeah. And, yeah. and then he ended up starting Braintree. So yeah, maybe it's like we should start like a PTSD from door-to-door sales slash trade show club, you know? <laughs> when did you start having the ideas that became your first, I guess, legitimate big business with a storefront and everything like that? So at 18, I got into university to study theology and philosophy, although I ended up going straight to philosophy. And I was living above an empty toy, sh- an empty store with my boyfriend at the time. He was a drummer in a grunge band. 
the store was empty for a really long time because the rent was really expensive. It's in a very high affluent area of, of London. And it was about £122,000 a year. So very, very high-end store. And the landlord was connected to my boyfriend's family. And I said, hey, we should do a pop-up store because it's empty anyway. And I love doing sales by this point because I'd been doing it. I'd carried on doing it in different ways. Like I'd done some art dealing and stuff since I'd done the garden. I'd moved up from garden sinks, I suppose. And we did a pop-up toy shop because it was a very affluent area full of families. And we sold children's toys over Christmas. We did very well, way, way better than anyone expected. So we ended up taking over the lease and over the course of three years, extending it to a whole three floors of a toy store. And we did children's clubs and like math classes for kids and philosophy classes. And we built like a secret door at the back of the toy shop that opened out to like a fantasy children's land where we'd host events. It was amazing. I had such a great time. And I was the person behind the counter every day. And I ran the store, ran the business. I designed it inside. I mean, it looks like my house in San Francisco. So it was very obviously inside my brain. And I, I, I learned a lot about Which business and finance. Which is quite eclectic in the yeah, best Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> like everything was upside down. We had inflatable dinosaurs coming down from the ceilings. But but yes, it was very Willy Wonka. And did I did you find over. kids responded? Like, what did they open up or how did they view that? Oh, man. I actually just had one of the kids who was used to hang out at the toy store come stay with me in San Francisco last oh, week. Cool. So I said to her, I mean, see, some of them have become like my little brothers and sisters. And when she did well in her GCSEs... Was that your godchild that was at yeah. the event? Yeah, you oh, met yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> I met her through the toy shop. So oh, that's crazy. So she walked into the toy shop one day yeah. and what I started was an entrepreneur program for local kids to sell their goods in this toy store, which drove my business partner crazy. He's like, we're meant to be selling our own things. We're not meant to be selling stuff that kids make. No, you got to do the marketplace model. Come on. It was so good. And and so kids would make like cards or like toys or like candy bags. And I would sell them on the counter and they would take the money. And they had little like pocket money bags where they would collect their earnings every week. And most of those kids, I've, I mean, I'm like godmothers to some of them. Their parents have like made me part of their family. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I mean, I have more friends under 15, I think, than I even have friends my own age. Like these kids are amazing. I love the way that they think. That's a good way to keep a healthy mindset. For totally, sure. totally. How did that experience of founding, operating and doing really well with that toy store impact you as a person? And what did you learn about yourself and your capabilities? Well, I think uh, I definitely learned a lot about managing a team. I mean, having a retail store is so different to having a startup or working in tech because you have a sharp responsibility to open and close every day and to handle people. And it's very repetitive and you have inventory and, you know, operations and logistics and stuff. And I think I, I definitely learned that I was good at picking up that kind of responsibility. But I learned a lot of things that I wasn't very good at, which is probably more informative. Like I'm probably too impulsive. Like I would wake up early every morning, go to the shop and, uh, and tie hundreds of balloons. So I wanted every kid to come to our store to leave with a balloon. And it's like, I don't think that's what you, people would tell you to do in business school. But it actually made our toy shop like the best toy shop because it was, I cared about it so deeply. Marketing's but, baked in and uh, yeah, everything. Yeah, but, uh, but it wasn't, I wasn't even trying to do marketing. I just wanted kids to come in and have this un unbelievable experience. Yeah. At this point in time, when you have the toy store, it's uh, it's still operating and everything. You're in university at this yeah. this point. Are you thinking about graduation? Are you thinking about lecturing, which you would go on to do at the that university? Or was yeah, it, it that university or another no, one? No, it wasn't. So what ended up happening was that I ran the toy store whilst I was at university and my attendance at university was atrocious. But they found out I was running a business. I had won some like entrepreneur awards. So they thought it was quite cool. And I, my grades weren't bad because I cared about philosophy so much. So I read it. Actually, in our window display, we had teddy bears reading philosophy books. So it was, <laughs> it was very on point. 
when I graduated was actually the day I introduced myself to most of my professors. So I was like going around saying like, oh, hi, I'm the girl with the toy shop. And, and they, they thought it was great. They didn't, they didn't mind so much. But the thing that I felt frustrated by by running a t- retail store was that if you wanted to change something, you have to bring in an architect, you have to bring in a team. If I wanted to change the color scheme, if I wanted to change the theme of anything that was going on there, it's a, it's a physical store. And that's when I started thinking, I should learn to code or I should learn about digital stuff because I've had an online store and I thought something wasn't working. It's a line of code I need to change and not like an entire physical store. So Yo, Gutenberg on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Completely. So I, so I moved to Berlin with the original plan to go just study. I was, learning, I was learning Ruby on Rails at the time and I wanted to just learn how to build digital products. So my co-founder of the toy shop bought me out the toy shop and I took the money and I went to Germany and I was like, I'm going to learn how to get involved with tech. And that was my only goal. I didn't have any specific plan. I was just thinking I need to have something that's malleable as a skill. And you've done that a couple of times, right? So you taught yourself to code and do a number of different things in technology. And then you went on to teach yourself venture and everything about investing. And I think you studied that for what, a year two or two years? And like, I know that you're still studying, but I mean, you like devoted a year basically to full-time studying. Have you done that a couple times in yeah, your life? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing it again right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so when I went to Berlin, I, I enrolled in a Ruby on Rails course and we had to do a project. And the project I thought to do was, why don't I build like a children's app? Because I knew a lot about kids, like the difference between a three-year-old and a four-year-old, like I could list you the differences. And so I built this app that was, well, I worked with a team that was building an app. And the idea was, is that it was a children's online social network where they communicated using vector images. So you can't control or moderate text, but if you can get a sticker book where they're creating sentences, you can kind of control what the stickers are. And I ended up, working, meeting this amazing guy who ran an, an ad agency there. He was American and he ended up becoming my co-founder. So I didn't even finish the Ruby on Rails course because I ended up becoming the co-founder of a tech startup. And I was a bit over my head because I've been learning <laughs> to code for about three months and I wasn't, didn't code in the project. So even my coding lessons got stopped early because I ended up running a company then for another three years in the space. But yeah, and then after that, when I wanted to come to Silicon Valley, I got really interested in investment. And I thought, I don't know anything about investment, but I want to be in this space. And I actually went to a village in the south of France and I read every investment report from the Kaufman Foundation since it like started. And uh, I did a huge deep dive in looking at like IRRs and returns of funds. And like now I'm doing a similar thing with economic policy, but it seems to be a, a trajectory of doing three years in a space, one year deep dive in a new space, and then committing another three or two, four years on it. And maybe something will stick for longer, but I think they all, they all actually have a similar overhead in terms of view. But uh, I have noticed that pattern in my life. So you're an expert, clearly, at breaking into new spaces where people think that they might need a degree or some type of credential to enter. And would you say that anybody can break in? How do you, because people are going to ask about that or wonder about that right now. Yeah, I think the biggest lie that is spread is that you need to be an expert to do things. And I think that people in industry set that to like create a hurdle for people to get into it. Because within three months of learning to code, I was running a tech startup. Right. It's and a great way to maintain a hierarchy totally inside the industry. Yeah. It's a wonderful scam. In venture capital, you know, you people think, especially something like VC, like you have to have like an MBA and like an, or an, a huge exit for a company and... Have a last name that's familiar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the way I went about it was just, I just try to learn as much stuff as I could. And I went in there wanting to learn stuff. I think people actually, a lot of the time, the right people, like the, the right type of experts really value the right kind of curiosity. The and they will practitioners help you. always do, right? I mean, totally. because they're so hungry for that just by nature of Yeah, they want to share the their wisdom. Yeah. So I was involved. I, so the way I ended up starting a VC fund was that 
I spent all this time researching venture capital and I wrote this article on Medium that was about VC and how I'd been studying the investment reports and I thought that there you could apply more like rationality techniques for investment. So I wrote this big article about Bayesian causal mapping for venture capital decisions, which is dry as hell, but apparently people read it and they liked it. And the next thing I knew, I had invites from people in Silicon Valley to come interview at venture funds. And I mean, I'd been working on this just researching it for a little bit. But I put myself out there. And I think one of the things that people don't do is they don't want to write the thing. They don't want to show what they know because they're so scared they don't know enough. And right. the way I think about writing articles is that I write articles because I don't know everything. And I want people to take, to give me the carrot to the next step. So yeah. I'll be like, here's what I currently believe. And I know some of it is wrong, but I want people to respond and find me. And I'm looking for those three people who will just go, hey, that thing you're on, here's where you go to next. And uh, I think writing articles and publishing stuff is part of the learning experience to, to, to Easter egg and to have, create a beacon to find the people that you want to find. Definitely. Like you need that lead generator online working for you because it's going to bring amazing opportunities that you couldn't have like sourced yourself necessarily. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So your article, are you talking about finance and industry based on psychology? Yeah. The longer one? Yeah. That, that's a really exciting article for a number of reasons. How do you view venture capital now? And how did you view it when you wrote the article? How has that changed? Yeah, so I actually reread the article recently. And when I wrote it, obviously I hadn't worked in any, in any investment capacity. I'd just been studying it. And what I was trying to do in the article was, everyone says that investments are intuitive. But intuition is just like a code word for something that's implicit, that's not yet made explicit in my mind. So or I was too like, many data points to explain coherently in the time given. and yeah. Totally. Like we're really bad at rendering models explicit, especially stuff that's going on in our minds. So I was trying to work out, well, how do you think apply like probability theory to what you're checklisting when you're making an investment? And I thought it was an interesting model, but I have changed a lot from then. So what I have noticed is that it kind of was a naive view of investment because it's not really even up to you to make like the idea that it just comes down to this checklist for like one person. Actually, every decision in investment is a group decision. So even if you have this Bayesian process that you're running through your mind, it doesn't matter if nobody else is doing it. And the way that investment works in terms of uh, like status and power and, you know, companies working with other companies and who your LPs are and how investment works as a system, you can't be some autonomous agent running a Bayesian process in your mind. It's way more collaborative than that. So I've definitely updated to know that. But I still think my, my intentions were good, but it'd probably be more valuable to an angel investor than someone working in a, in a large team, unless everybody was trying to run a similar process, which I think would be really hard. So with investing in VC, do you see VC as a boutique industry that's going to continue, that's going to grow? Is it going to remain relatively the same? And what do you wish for the industry? Yeah, I, there's so many new, I mean, I, thought, I think crowdfunding and even crypto have all brought in different ways of funding projects, which is really exciting. But they're um, kind of like informational sources for VCs, right? Yeah. Or they're kind of like signal sources in a way. Or do you, do you view, the, view them as like alternative investment vehicles? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of projects I've seen crowdfunded or even ICOs are like available to average non-accredited investors. VC is such a weird industry because I think the mistake that most people make is this idea that VCs are like the ultimate decision maker. Like they, from experience and obviously having worked with many VC fans, like they have some in, invested GP capital, but a lot of the time it's, you know, 
other LP money and they have a liability to the legal structure and the investment thesis that they've set up for these people. So most of the time startups don't think that. They think that they take it as an insult if someone doesn't invest in them. It's like you actually don't know the complexity of why or why they can't invest in your thing. And it's way more complex. It's not just like they have to like you at a party and they like your idea. And sometimes (laughs) it is. Sometimes it is. And obviously if you're a very established VC, you can make that kind of decision. But for early stage funds or like, you know, younger funds, you you have a big responsibility to be able to just raise your second fund. And I, I don't think that's explicitly known by many people in the startup industry. Because you see people writing tweets like, well, why has this person done this? And I, I can figure it out in two seconds why a VC has done that because I understand the system. But it's, it's not that they, they have full autonomy over everything. They have a responsibility. There are more things in heaven and earth than dreamed of in your philosophies, Horatio. Yeah, that's a good totally. quote to remember with any industry, especially VC, because I view VC, we talked about this as kind of like the only intelligence test that you're legally allowed to give mm-hmm. people. And I think that's a fun, kind of like mischievous thing about the industry that's fantastic. So, yeah. Okay, your ideas are really, really fascinating, and we want to talk about them some. So, you've written a number of different essays, some with us. The ones that you didn't write with us, I think, are horrible and <laughs> generally just weren't good, well reasoned. But I'm just kidding. I do want to talk about some of the essays you've written with other people, though. When it comes to your writing and creating and doing all that, are there any favorite essays that you have? They all mean different things to me. And I have so many unpublished drafts as well that also mean a lot to me. Some of them have been caused paradigm shifts in my life. Like the one about venture allowed me to then work in venture. And I wasn't even thinking that that was possible. I've met so many friends from writing these articles. I'm not trying to win over everybody. I get like people telling me I'm terrible all the time. (laughs) But for the few people that I've met who've kind of, my essays have struck a chord with them. They make all others. Yeah, it's just like I'm looking for that one person who has been thinking something similar, who will send me an email about what they've been thinking about and my life will change forever. And I have so many closest, dearest friends that I've met just because I've published something. So now when I get nervous about writing something, I always think, well, who is the person that I might meet because of this? They all have served, they're like children. I have two things that are like children to me. Well, apart from my pets, my articles and also my domains. I have so many domain addresses. But uh, like- Oh, same here. I'm a compulsive, yeah, compulsive buyer. Compulsive. I have just joke ones most of the time. Like the world's coolest person.com redirects to a picture of my face. Yeah, you have articles and domains. Well, that's why I invited you here. I thought that was like the legitimate- Yeah, I'm CEO of the world's coolest person.com. I didn't know you own that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's really, really cool. So what, are you on Namecheap right now or what? What do you use to buy? I'm, I bought lots of dot AIs and you buy Same. them from one and one domain of the one and one dot com. So it's like okay. I go from the name like, does it. Do they as well? They're not a sponsor yet, but I'll uh, keep talking about them if they want to be. Okay, great. Yeah, I haven't I haven't used those guys. I've just had good luck with with domains. Yeah, with using them for domains. Oh, perfect. So. Okay, well, I will use them. My favorite essays that you've written. So there are a number finance and industry based on psychology. I think that's a great one to start. Uh, another fun one is. Silicon Valley has a problem problem. And you write, basically, Silicon Valley has a problem. People have fallen into the trap of thinking that their first world problems are representative of ways to make money and ways to start businesses and what they should be focusing on. Why'd you write that essay? And yeah, what inspired you to write it? I wrote that essay because I got invited to speak on a panel at at an AI conference, which I won't name. But I don't think they put the video up because I could just cause such trouble on the panel. But on the panel, it was a bunch of AI VCs, including me. They were talking about these like impactful companies they'd invested in. And there was like one guy who said, you know, we've invested in a company and the motto was changing how the world eats. 
And the company figured out startup employees' preferences for their lunches. So they were out of the office when people are doing the lunch order. They would know <laughs> what the people wanted. And I was just like, I can't take this guy seriously. I mean, the idea that, the, I mean, listen, this is probably a really cool company and I would maybe even use it. And I think in my article I said, listen, there's loads of perk companies that I sure. use. Like I use dry cleaning pickup. Like I'm the laziest perk. I don't want to do any errands. I even have a, an assistant who manages my errand apps for me. Like I am the worst person. I'm not dissing you for using these services, but presenting it as solving world problems yeah. as a narrative, I thought was dangerous because here you have a culture where people are like stepping over potentially dead people on the street and you're saying like don't worry your startup is changing the world because you figured out what startups want for lunch before they even thought about what they want for lunch and i just thought like where is this going to go i yeah. mean we're we're diluting ourselves away from like the rest of the world and we're going to look like terrible people and um, even in a marketing stance you shouldn't be doing this right because so many people i don't i don't think what people realize is that just how many people outside of Silicon Valley and the rest of the world look to Silicon Valley for choices and ideas about what to do. Like I found a company, I think it was like a company in Japan or whatever that was so inspired by James Cameron's Terminator that they named their company Cyberdyne Systems. And oh, like amazing. there's so many people are just like drawn to American culture still. And it's something that we have like, if we're here, if we're creating the culture, we have an obligation to create great culture, right? Totally, or, 100%. And I think it's like, you can make those perk products I'm 100% for it, but let's just keep the narrative humble. And I think San Francisco needed some humility. And I, the point of that article was to remind us that like there are bigger problems and we're just separating ourselves from the fact that we don't have access to what's really going on. But we actually do because it's outside on the streets of Silicon Valley. And that's why it felt so poisonous, I suppose, to like hear these pictures. So yeah, that was a fun article to write. You wrote an article called Love and Beauty in a Time of Machine Intelligence. And this article was where... I stopped everything that I was doing in the research process. And I was like, there's something really, really big here that we have to focus on. We could make an entire episode about it. I won't. But you basically pinpointed the fact that the emergence of human language, the small mouth noises that I make trying to communicate what I'm thinking about in my head are imperfect. But human language is a kind of like the first singularity that we either created or had happened to us, whatever the case was. That's really interesting because you're thinking about a technology that we have that's part of our you know, brain and everything like that. Yeah. And you're thinking about an evolutionary timescale. So how'd you start thinking about that? And what do you mean by that? I was thinking a lot about AI and kind of cognition at the time. And I can't take claim for thinking all this wonderful stuff about language. And I don't know if it was Kevin Kelly or someone else I was reading where I'd really looked at the history of um, humans and language creation. But I mean, before language, we were just... So just for the record, I'm a super Kevin Kelly buff, but also like I had not heard anybody, for the record, pinpoint that human language was like the first singularity. So well, I'm, uh, just going to throw that out there. Maybe it was mine. Uh, still having imposter syndrome, so there's, there's the thing. You know, before language, your brains were like slippery consciousness. We didn't have words for concepts. I was obsessed with ancient Egyptian culture when I was a kid for this exact purpose of like, how do you represent con concepts um, between people? The general premise is, is that you have culture and you have humans and you have relationships. And how do you translate that information from one person to another? And language to me is definitely the first singularity because everything changed. So you were able to teach people stuff. You were able to say you know, here's why you have to start a fire. Here's how you do X. Here's what the threats are to our tribe or whatever there was. 
And then suddenly your education and learning becomes 100x, 1,000x. Mm. And you have this, if you look at the history of human evolution, like our brain size and our progress changes everything after, after the creation of at least word language. It fits the mathematical de- definition of a singularity in terms of like our brain size and everything because nobody can account for that type of expansion and explosion. Totally. Yeah. It, was a, it was a huge explosion. And in my article, I, I compared it to AI because AI has the same similar power where you you know, we already have like supercomputers in our pockets. And it means that we're able to draw on the world's information, the world's history at any time. But the thing I really found fascinating about AI was this ability to do problem solving in a way that humans can't or aren't able to. And if people think about AI as like the biggest singularity, but in my article, I was trying to present that perhaps language was the first singularity and AI was the next kind of information explosion where we wouldn't be able to understand what would happen after. And I think the article was kind of written in a more romantic way where I was trying to say like, it's, it's, people are very scared of AI, but it's also kind of extremely beautiful that we don't know what will happen in terms of our human understanding, even of ourselves. Definitely. And like in a simulation or real world where the journey seems to be the point of it, it seems like it would be a waste if we knew what the end was going to be, right? Totally. Yeah. Another essay that you've written that I definitely want to talk about a little bit was thinking inside the box. So, so often we try to be unique and completely original, but sometimes the best ideas are already in front of us. And you say in that essay, we would do better for the world spending critical spreading, excuse me, critical reasoning tools and mechanisms than raising endless sums of capital to be fluttered around. You mentioned Bayesian causal maps, I think, earlier in Decision Trees. What do you mean by that essay? What are you talking about? So here's a good example. People on Twitter often tweet about how, you know, Jeff Bezos is the richest guy in the world. If only he gave all his money to stop everyone being homeless in Seattle. And what they're missing there, which was kind of the point of my article, was that you don't want Jeff Bezos to give all of his money because the problem right. is complex. What you want him to actually do is look at the problem because there's a reason why he's made all this money. Carnegie it's- already made these arguments in the gas- <laughs> like a long time ago that it was just not going to work out well if you just drifted the capital down without the decision-making structures and Seriously. education. Yeah. And it's, 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 like, it's, it's not a capital problem. Like there is money going into charities and philanthropies. Like why don't we have a cure for cancer? Right. It's not a lack of funding. It's a lack of understanding basic research and maybe focusing on the wrong problems or not having the right tools to solve the right problems. Or maybe we need AI to help us look at the data, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like the idea that, you know, we should just be channeling, like the money is the hurdle. And the point of that article that I wrote was that critical reasoning tools will make money intelligent. So if you're trying to work out how to invest money wisely, I'm thinking about systems. I got really obsessed with systems thinking and like, how do you look at complex systems and like work out what the leverage points are? So I'd go to all these like fundraisers because like VCs love doing fundraisers. And I'd go to those fundraisers and they'd be like, we're going to give all this money to this gang stopping charity in New York. And I was like, well, why are there gangs in New York? Like, why isn't everyone going to the meta reasons of why these things happen in the first place? And it tends to a lot of times still come back to science. Like it always eventually comes back to some sort of problem that we haven't understood. But people just kind of like throw money down the drain by not tackling the real pain points. And that million also, hacking the branches versus the one hacking the root. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're not they're not they're not doing that. And and you have to tackle the root. It's kind of humbling when you take that approach because you realize how hard it is. Yeah. But I think that most more people need to do that. And then instead of doing this like signaling branch investing thing. That was that was the point of that article. Here, here. At the end of most interviews we do like a lightning round where we go through the best books, music, everything that you're consuming lately and enjoying. Kinda of want to do a version of that here. You mentioned before that some of your favorite books are the Greek tragedies. Why is that the case? And what are your favorites? 
I was obsessed with classics when I was a kid, and my favorite is anything by Euripides. And what I learned about from Euripides was that he created these like human archetypes, these like archetypes of people. And he touched through every human experience from like love to pain to death and different types of people that embody those characteristics and experiences. And uh, it was just like having mentors. I would go to school and I'd see someone being mean to someone. I'd be like, oh, it's just like Agamemnon in book blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, it kind of gave me a reference point to human experience. And actually, my, my favorite text by Euripides by a long way is the Medea. And Medea is the story. She's the wife of Jason, Jason of the Argonauts. And she like kills her kids in a jealous rage. And for me, it was such an insane display of evil right? But it's not even evil. Like killing your kids is really just self-harm. But she doesn't kill herself in the process. And it's this fascinating psychological thriller that I made our high school act as a play and half the kids in the audience cried. So I never forget that. But Euripides just touches on, it's like Shakespeare. It's like it just, he had an understanding of people that was kind of beyond time. And it's still relevant now to read Euripides and associate that with my friend base. I'm like, oh, that guy, it's just like Euphigenia. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe nobody else is doing that, but I'm doing that all the time. <laughs> if you would recommend one tragedy or thing that I should read or listeners should read right now, what is it from the Greek tragedies or Euripides? Apart from the Medea, which I really love. I mean, I just love the Odyssey. It's like a sacred text. There are so many things in the Odyssey about relationships and, you know, Penelope and Odysseus and their son and family and tradition and warfare and culture and the entirety of human experiences in that book. Yeah, when my, if I ever have kids, I will just force them to read the Odyssey a lot, I think. Have you read Harold Bloom at all? So Harold Bloom has an interesting book called Shakespeare and the Invention of Human, but he has a pretty uh, bold claim where he basically puts out that Shakespeare and writers like him are, in a sense, creating small singularities from humans and that they are catalyzing a new way to think about things. So Bloom kind of argues that Shakespeare, in a sense, created the modern mind and the mind that gave birth to the industrial revolution and things like that just by nature of his plays. Is that that seems to be you share that sentiment? Oh, totally. And the only reason why I'm not there's a reason why Shakespeare isn't the first person I go to. It's only because my mum loves Shakespeare so much that I'm like traumatized. <laughs> so my mum, in all of her schizophrenic glory, refers to Shakespeare characters like their family members. So she'll be like, you'll never guess what Othello did today. And uh, because I grew up with this, I have like, I've somehow distanced myself slightly more from the Shakespeare stuff. But totally, they create paradigm shifts in how you think about culture. And they're still valid now because these people understood archetypes. And it gave a reference point for people to navigate their lives. Are there any science fiction stories or any science fiction authors that have impacted your thinking in a similar way? I loved the culture series. Player of Games is a great book. And I remember the first is that time. book two in the culture series or book something? One. I think okay, it's gotcha, book one. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I think Consider Pleiades, Pleiades or Pleiades is the, the first book. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I oh, man. Oh. I, just, I just read the first book. Okay. Maybe that's the first book. But Player of Games is a fantastic book. Cool. I really enjoyed reading that. And Asimov has a huge library. Like, he is incredible author. Like, he even wrote a book of humor. Like, he touched yeah. on every... He didn't just do sci-fi. Like, he's best known for sci-fi. But he's written in almost every genre. And as an author, he inspired me to definitely write. And I did write... I have written the draft of a sci-fi book. 
and it's very Asimov inspired. I don't know if I'll ever publish it. And I've published some chapters online, but I love the way that he writes and builds characters over time. He's an unbelievable author. So if you had to listen to something now, or if you are listening to something, are there any albums or musicians that you have on repeat or composers? I listen to Led Zeppelin every day. Definitely. I mean, if I'm listening to music, I'm probably listening to Led Zeppelin. And if you're going, are you going through like, do you have their entire catalog? Or like I just have the... it on Spotify, so yeah. I play it on my Sonos at home. I don't know. I have like dad music taste. So Are you dancing when you listen or any I'm type of... I'm working most of the time. Gotcha. I mean, tell you what, when I go for a run, sometimes I catch myself dancing whilst I'm running and I, I wonder why people are looking at me weirdly. Yeah, like the oldies, I'm such like a... I'm like, I'm like a 60-year-old man in the wrong body, I think. <laughs> but I listen to a lot of... I get, I get that. I listen to a lot of like old, old rock but I, I, I'm really interested in, I do listen to a lot of classical. Like if I need to work, I mean, my love and beauty in a time of machine intelligence article was dedicated to the composer Max Richter. And he has changed my life. I listened to his reworkings of Vivaldi Four Seasons and I had like a spiritual experience I had never had before. That's my most played thing on my laptop. And when he retweeted my article, it was, it seemed insignificant to other people, but it was probably one of my proudest moments because he shared my <laughs> article and he referenced me as being like Keats. And uh, I was like, well, I'm just done now. This is everything. Mic drop. Yeah. So yeah, Max Richter is un- unreal. How do you view, so obviously you're, are you a proponent of other composers remixing and remaking the works of past classical, you know, famous works or? Yeah, I love it. Like, it's, like, I don't listen to Vivaldi, but I listen to Max Richter's version of Vivaldi. It's like you take something which is classic and you work out how to fine tune it to the current time slice of existence that you're in. And there's something very beautiful about it. And I feel like it's a homage, not a, it's not an insult, it's a homage Especially if, you know, he can write his own music and he does. In a sense, it's a compliment to Vivaldi. It's a total compliment. It made me a Vivaldi fan. And I wasn't a Vivaldi fan before because it's just so overplayed. Like there used to be a ringtone that was like Vivaldi forces. And then the right people find the original source material. It's it's crazy how art works, right? It's it's amazing. And I listen to lots of old like Baroque operas and Purcell wrote an opera and Handel when they were like 18 and 22. And sometimes when I feel like I have imposter syndrome and it's like late at night and I can't sleep, I'll lie in bed and I'll listen to Purcell's Diodor Aeneas. And he wrote this in his early 20s. And I think if he can do this in his early 20s, then what am I doing? And same with Handel. They're like the original Teal Fellows, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That was, yeah, man, that was was really good. You took it back to the the current culture. Don't worry, it's still about time. Wonderful. So one of the, actually, you already looked at these notes, but maybe you didn't see the last question. Guess what my favorite essay of yours is? Well, I looked at the notes, so I would be cheating if I didn't tell you. Okay, so you actually, yeah, you yeah, pay yeah, attention pretty well. This is like a test that I actually looked at. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite essay that you've written is The Grandest Vision for Humanity, which was a speech you delivered at a friend's wedding, right? Yeah. So tell, tell me about how you were thinking about that and why you chose to deliver it at a friend's wedding. This is the, fi- the final question. So include all of your calls to action here. A couple that I know, they were getting married and I had they had an amazing wedding. It was in a planetarium in Berkeley and we were like underneath the cosmos that was projected in the sky. And the idea was they had three speeches and one was to represent the past, one was to represent the present and one was to represent the future. And they asked me to represent the future and I was it was the first wedding I'd ever been to. So it was already a huge honor to be asked to speak at this thing. So I painted this kind of vision of how I could imagine the human existence to go. And it was very poetic and it was meant to be something to aspire to, which was, you know, imagine if 
our days never had to end. I talked about life expansion as well as life extension because you want to extend life. I'm a huge proponent of, of longevity research, but at the same time, you want to increase human experience. And what would that look like? And it was almost like a poem. And it really meant a lot to me to write that and deliver that at their wedding. And I guess my vision for the world in that sense is that if everything is a scam, which is the neon sign in my house, as you know, <laughs> if everything is a scam, that's not a bad thing. If reality is malleable, if we didn't have to take it seriously, did we, as Ayn Rand said, is that a sad fact or is that unbridled opportunity? Is that an invitation to have the best party imaginable, the best time in the world? It means that it's a video game. Yeah. And it means that there are no levels and there are no boss. You're just literally creating the video game and your own experience as you go along. God stepped off the stage and now it's it's 80 to 90% finished. How are we going to finish it? Totally. You know, you define that narrative. And my call to action in in that speech was don't sell yourself short. And there is no limit to what you can do and what we can achieve. Yeah, I, I really love that. I really love that speech. So I'm glad you did too. Reva, Melissa, Tez, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been awesome. Thank you. Any final, we got to do an encore. Sorry, I'm, I'm already getting feedback from the <laughs> socials. So a quick encore. If there's anything that you would leave the listeners with, what would that be? Don't take anything too seriously. Love it. Everybody have a great one. And we will see you next time on the Mission Daily. Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by the Twilio Signal Conference this October 17th and the 18th in San Francisco. The mission will be there on location. You can use our code MISSION20 to get a discount on your tickets, and we will see you there. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.